Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would work powerfully in us through your word as your spirit takes your word and pierces our hearts with it, convicting us, encouraging us, and transforming us. Lord, we acknowledge to you that we look at Jesus and we see that we still fall far short of his glory. We see how far we have left to grow. And we just ask, Lord, that you would, um, even this morning through your word, as we listen to what you have to tell us, that you would be conforming us more and more to the image of Christ. Father, I pray that you would just be at work among us this morning, that you would change us, that you would not let us stay the same. We don't want to stay the same. We don't want to sin as much as we do. We want to be like Jesus. So please make us more like Jesus, even this morning we pray in his name. Amen. We're back in Hebrews this morning, Hebrews chapter 13, and we're only looking at two verses this morning, verses 5 and 6. Hebrews 13 and verse 5 says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? I think you would agree with me that the whole world is in a mad dash to find happiness, to find contentment, to find full satisfaction. And they are looking in all the wrong places. They are like the Israelite king Solomon, who spent himself on every pleasure that he could possibly think of, trying to discover what was the point of life. And everything he tried, he found to be an empty husk of meaninglessness. And it's only by the grace of God that by the end of his life, he, according to Ecclesiastes, rediscovered the truth of what life is all about. He says at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Verses 13 to 14, he says, The conclusion, when all has been heard, is, Fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Most people who spend their lives on self and pleasure, as Solomon did, never end up discovering this. And so they die unfulfilled, looking back on a life that was wasted, wasted on themselves and on meaninglessness. And last week, when we were in the book of Hebrews, we saw in verses 1 through 4 that the life of someone who is persevering in the faith should be a life that is characterized by brotherly love, a sacrificial, selfless love that puts others' needs before your own. And at first glance, when we read verses 5 and 6, these next two verses seem to have nothing to do with verses 1 through 4. 
It seems like a random thought just popped into the preacher's head and he thought he ought to throw this one in for good measure. But when you stop and consider what these two verses are saying to us about contentment, I think you will find that these two verses have everything to do with the first four verses. In fact, verses 5 and 6 are the prerequisite to verses 1 through 4. If you do not live out verses 5 and 6, you will not be able to live out verses 1 through 4. Verse 5 begins by saying, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. It's here that we find the character of contentment. These verses are about contentment. Contentment is the prerequisite to love. And the first thing that the preacher shows us about contentment is the character of contentment. And in this first couple of phrases in this verse, the preacher gives us two instructions. First, he says, our character should be free from the love of money. And second, we should be content with what we have. It's really just one instruction said two different ways, negatively and positively, what we should not be and what we should be. First, what should we not be? What should not be true about our character, about our manner of living? It says that we should not be lovers of money. We should not be greedy. We should not be covetous. Now, what is so bad about loving money? Well, to, to find that out, I want us to turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, where Paul makes it quite plain what is so bad about loving money. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and starting in verse 6. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, But godliness, actually, is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness." That's what's so bad about loving money. And notice that Paul did not say that being rich in and of itself is wrong. He did not say that money in and of itself is evil. He said that wanting to get rich opens you up to temptation. He said that the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And this, kind, this sin is widespread. No one is immune from this sin. This sin is not restricted to an income level. If you are rich, it does not necessarily mean that you are a lover of money. And if you are dirt poor, you could still be a huge lover of money. 
And what a person does with their money is not always a good indicator of whether or not that person is a lover of money. Because loving money can show itself in hoarding money, and the person just says, well, I'm a saver. And it can show itself in spending money. You know, you can't take it with you. Ultimately, it is a question of the motivation behind your hanging on to money or your spending of money. Because loving money or loving what money can buy is a form of selfishness. Because you want these things, you want money, you want what money can buy for yourself. You are wanting to ensure your comfort, your security, your pleasure, your happiness above all others. It's an obsession with yourself. And if you are obsessed with yourself, how well do you think you are going to obey verses 1 through 4? You're not going to be able to show brotherly love at all. So loving money, it should not characterize us because loving money is going to cause me, when I see my brother in need and I have something that I can meet his need with, if I'm loving money, what am I going to do? I'm going to close my heart to my brother who's in need. So that's the first thing. That's what our character should not be. Secondly, what should be true about our character, our manner of living? Hebrews 13, verse 5 says that we should be content with what we have. Content with what we have. Now, that does not mean that you cannot ever buy clothes or a house or a car. It doesn't mean you can never go on a vacation. It doesn't even mean that you cannot want these things. But it does mean that you are not going to set your hope on these things. You are not going to base your joy on these things. And when you are denied these things, you are not going to grumble about it because you're satisfied with what you have. Back in that same chapter of 1 Timothy, you don't have to turn there, but later in the chapter in verse 17, Paul says this. He says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. To be content means that you are devoted to God and nothing else. You cannot be devoted to money or the things that money can buy and be devoted to God at the same time. I want you to look at what Jesus said in his famous Sermon on the Mount over in Matthew chapter 6. And there's a famous portion of that sermon in Matthew 6 where Jesus talks about not worrying. And we all know that passage. But often we don't see that, that there's a verse right before that that directly ties to that passage about not worrying. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. This is the verse that is right before that section about not worrying. Matthew 6 verse 24. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Verse 25, 
for this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So often our worry is tied to the fact that we are trying to serve two masters, serve God and serve wealth or anything other than God. And when that God, that false God, starts to get threatened because we're depending on that thing to be God and we find that God failing, we worry. But when we focus on the one true God and we see that he never fails, we will not worry. That's why later on Jesus says in verse 33, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow. Remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy 6 when he said, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. You cannot bring with you into eternity the possessions that you have today. I was thinking of John Dickerson and the sneakers that he's probably worn the past two decades. Not even those are going to make it into the kingdom. (laughs) Nothing that you have on this world will make it into the kingdom. But godliness, a life spent pursuing Christ and loving his people, that will store up treasure for you in heaven. In that same sermon, Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is the character of contentment. Now, it's all well and good to know what the character of contentment is, but you cannot experience contentment if there is not a rock-solid foundation upon which to base your contentment. There has to be a core to that contentment that your contentment can be anchored to and built around. And if you seek contentment in anything that this world has to offer you, you will never truly be content. Every extra dollar in the bank account, every new gadget, every exotic vacation, every new level of fame that you reach, you will discover that it is not enough to satisfy you. And so you will always be wanting more. Each new little God that you start worshiping, well, that God's not going to do it for me, and you go seeking the next one. It is only Christ who is enough to satisfy the soul. So this is the core of contentment that we see in the second half of verse 5. He tells us what the core of our contentment must be. And it's this, being content with what you have for, he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Who knows how many stacks of self-help books have been published with each author promising the path to contentment, promising 
that you read this book, you do what it says, and you'll be a new you. The trees that were cut down to produce the paper of those books would have been put to better use as firewood, along with the cash that was used to purchase them. They don't amount to a hill of beans. But here, in chapter 13, verse 5, we find the secret of contentment. What those countless books are unable to reveal about the secret of contentment, God sums up in 11 words. Nine words in the Greek. He says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. That is the secret of contentment. And this is the truth that these Hebrew believers that the preacher was writing to had begun to lose their grip on. They had trusted in this truth before, And they had contentment that had been so complete that according to chapter 10, verse 34, they had accepted joyfully the seizure of their property, knowing that they have for themselves a better possession and a lasting one. That's how deeply they trusted this promise, how content they were, that they could lose everything they have in this world and still rejoice. But they had begun to forget. They had forgotten this promise which led to them losing their contentment, which then led to the threat of lovelessness encroaching upon their relationships with each other, which then led the preacher to write this letter to them. So in verse 5, what is God saying to us here as believers? When he says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, There is no stronger way to deny something in the Greek language than how this is phrased. God is denying even the possibility of this ever happening to his people. It's not ever going to happen. God will never leave us. And the preacher, he's quoting from the Old Testament, from when Moses was passing off the baton of leadership to Joshua. And God was commissioning Joshua to lead his people into the promised land. And so when these Hebrew believers, these Jews, heard this letter read to them, they would have immediately thought of the passages in Deuteronomy and Joshua where God promised Joshua and the people that he would never leave them and that he would enable them to enter into the promised land. And we've seen throughout this letter how the preacher constantly is drawing a parallel between Israel and these believers. As Joshua and all Israel were headed into the promised land, so these believers, and so you and I, are heading toward that better country, Messiah's kingdom. And so the preacher is reminding us to endure whatever suffering comes our way, because God will not fail to bring us into his kingdom. He will not abandon us in our suffering. God first says, I will never desert you. This word means to let someone go in the sense of taking away what is supporting them. It would be like you carrying your child and then just dropping your arms, letting your child fall to the ground, or kicking your child out of the house to fend for himself or herself. God is saying to these believers and to you that in the midst of your suffering, he will never, ever stop upholding you. He will never, ever stop 
carrying you through your trial. And then he says, nor will I ever forsake you. Forsake here has the idea of abandonment. To the extent that you leave someone exposed to danger or to peril. It's the very same word that Jesus uttered from the cross when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken by his Father on the cross because of our sins, so that we would never be forsaken. So this promise that God will be with us always is the core of our contentment. That is what our contentment is to be based on. Nothing else, not the shifting sand of riches or fame or pleasure, but on God alone. Then we can ask the question, how is this promise from God the secret to having contentment? How does it work? How does me understanding this promise work to generate contentment in my life? Well, we find that in verse 6 when he says, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? This is the confidence of contentment. The confidence of contentment. To claim that God is your helper is quite a bold thing to say. It would almost seem presumptuous if not for the fact that God himself had promised that he would be with us always. God's promise to never leave us makes verse 6 not a statement of presumption, but a declaration of trust in God. It would actually be sinful unbelief to not say, the Lord is my helper. As believers in Christ, this is something that we need to confidently and boldly declare and believe when you truly know and you believe that the Lord is your helper when you know that the almighty sovereign God of the whole universe is personally by your side to give you aid in any and every difficult situation how should that affect you it should lead to your being unafraid I was thinking back to kindergarten when I was the youngest in the class and I had bullies. One bully in particular, he would seek me out and he would back me into corners. I remember one time I, I uh, made this little project and he came over to me and he ripped it out of my hand. Another time he grabbed me and he shoved me down into a cubby and just you know, was kneeling over me, looming. Now, if I had someone bigger and stronger standing next to me who I knew would instantly step in to protect me, I would have been unafraid of this bully. Well, in God, we have someone. We have the omnipotent judge of all the earth personally standing by us to protect us and to carry us. So having this God beside us and knowing he's beside us there should be not ever any cause for fear. He goes on to say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? With this God helping us, what can mere man possibly do to us? To this you might object, Man can do a whole lot to me. He can slander me. 
He can rob me. He can beat me. He can kill me. What are you talking about? What can man do to me? Man can do a lot to me. But that is the same thinking that these Hebrew believers had fallen into. They were afraid of what man was going to do to them. They forgot that their Father in heaven is sovereign. And that if man should do any of these things to them that they were fearing, it would only be because their heavenly Father had sovereignly ordained for that to come about in their lives, for their discipline and for their good, for their godliness. Man can do absolutely nothing apart from God's say-so. Not even Satan himself can touch us apart from God ordaining it, permitting it. We see that in the book of Job where Satan has to come to God to ask his permission to do anything to Job. So if man does anything to you, we have to remember that it has first passed through the hands of God. He has ordained it. He has brought it about in our lives for our good, even though it hurts. And persecution, that is about the worst thing that we can think of happening to us. All you have to do is read a Voice of the Martyrs magazine and shudder. And these believers were facing persecution. And the preacher's telling them, you don't need to be afraid because God is with you. If God's ever-present help in the midst of persecution should make us contentedly unafraid, shouldn't his ever-present help lead to our contentment in every single other situation? This was certainly true in the life of the Apostle Paul. Turn, turn over to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Listen to what Paul says. And he's writing this letter from prison. If anyone had an excuse to not be content, it would be the Apostle Paul. Verse 10, he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. He's talking about the Philippians and how they have sent aid to him as he's sitting in prison. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever, cir- excuse me, whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Now we ask, Paul, what's the secret? How can you be content in prison? Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That was the secret. Paul had hit upon this very same secret of contentment. The very same secret we see here in Hebrews chapter 13. Paul had Christ standing standing beside him. And so it did not matter to Paul whether he was rich or whether he was poor, whether he was having three square meals a day or whether he was having a grumbling tummy because he had nothing to eat. It didn't matter. All that mattered to him was that Jesus was with him to strengthen him, to endure whatever kind of suffering God ordained for him to endure. 
if he had Jesus, if he had God by his side, Paul could be content. And according to this passage, in Hebrews, we always have God by our side. He never leaves. He never deserts us. He's not saying, oh, I'm tired. i got to go take a break. Let me leave you. I'll be right back. No, he's always there. So what does that mean for us? How often should we be content? Should there ever be a time when we're not content? No. Why? Because the one who is our contentment is always right there. And so when we are not content, what does that mean? It means we have fallen into sinful unbelief and we need to repent and we need to ask God to help us trust him and be content in him again. Discontent is always sin, always. One last thing about this verse I want to point out. The preacher, he's quoting from Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verse 6, we read in our call to worship. That's what he's quoting here in chapter 13 of Hebrews, verse 6. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. And the words of that psalm are ultimately the words of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus knew that God was his helper, he was able to endure all that he did. By faith in Jesus, we are united to Jesus. We are reconciled to God in Jesus. Therefore, when Jesus says, the Lord is for me, I will not fear, we can also say that because Jesus has brought us near to God in himself. And the ultimate proof that contentment is the prerequisite to love is seen in Jesus Christ. Jesus trusted perfectly that God was his helper. Even though, that he, even though he knew that he would experience being forsaken by God on the cross in order to purchase our salvation, Jesus also knew that the Father would ultimately remember him and be with him by raising him from the dead. Jesus knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that his Father was his helper. And that is why we see Jesus utterly unafraid throughout his entire earthly ministry. There was never a man so fearless as the Lord Jesus. He didn't have a fearful bone in his body because he knew his Father was with him. And it's also why we see Jesus totally content, even though he had no home of his own where he could lay his head at night. Even hanging on the cross, stripped of all his possessions, with the soldiers gambling for the clothes on his, that came off his back. You can hear the contentment ring through his voice when he says his last words. He says, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus' contentment enabled him to love his disciples to the end, to the uttermost. What happens when you or I suffer? We tend to become even more self-absorbed than usual. Or maybe that's just true of me. We lash out. When we're stressed, we lash out at the very people God is commanding us to love because we are only caring about ourselves in that moment. 
But what do we see Jesus doing on the very night that he was going to be betrayed? The very night that he was going to have to endure more suffering than we could ever imagine. If we were in his place, we would be curled up in the fetal position on the floor, cursing anybody who dared ask us for anything. But what do we see Jesus doing? We see him washing his disciples' feet. We see him teaching them and praying for them. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they failed to stand with him, pray with him, we see him concerned about his disciples falling into temptation when he instructs them to keep watching and praying. We see him protecting his disciples when the soldiers come and he says, just take me, let my disciples go. Even while hanging on the cross, we see him making arrangements for his mother, Mary, to have security under the protection of one of his disciples. And ultimately, his suffering and his dying on the cross was out of love for his father and for us as he was laying down his life for wicked sinners, lovingly purchasing salvation for them with his own blood. I hope I've made it clear. I don't know that I have, but I hope that you're seeing that in order to love the way we are commanded to love in verses 1 through 4, in order to demonstrate that kind of selflessness to one another, we have to be content. We have to find our everything, our all in all, as we sang. It has to be Christ. It can't be anything else because Christ can never be taken from you. Any hope you place in anything in this world, that can be taken away and you'll become protective of it and jealous for it. And when somebody else infringes upon that, you are going to lash out at them. But when Jesus is your all in all and no one can take him from you, you are complete and you can give of yourself and you can spend yourself on other people. I hope that's clear. And if you want to love the way that Jesus loved, You first need Jesus to save you, to reconcile you to God and to become the master of your life. And you can experience his salvation if you turn from your sins and you entrust yourself to him alone to save you. And then being in Christ, you then need to believe this promise in verse 5, that God will never leave you. He will never, ever forsake you. And it is then that you will be content. And it is only then that you will be free to spend yourself in loving other people. So let's find our all in all in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in preparing this message, you know I find myself falling far short. There's so many times I am discontent and self-seeking and and failing to love those who you have called me to selflessly love because I'm too obsessed with myself. And Lord, I'm, I'm sure there are others who feel the same way I do. We see Jesus and we confess, oh, we are not like him. Lord, we want to be like him. May you make us loving like him. May you continue to conform us to his image. We want to be pleasing to you as he was perfectly pleasing to you. Help us, Lord, to make it our ambition to please our Lord Jesus, to please you. Lord, help us to learn contentment. Please teach us contentment as you taught Paul contentment. 
Lord, help us to find in Christ our all in all. Please reveal the idols that we are bowing down to, that we are trying to find contentment in, but that will never satisfy us. Lord, help us to repent. Help us to turn away from those things and to fix our hope on you alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.